الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى والصلاة والسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن في خلق السماوات والأرض واختلاف الليل والنهار والفلك التي تجري في البحر بما ينفع الناس وما وما أنزل الله من السماء مما إن فأحيا به الأرض بعد موتها وتصريف الرياح والسحاب المسخر والسماء والأرض لآيات لقوم يعقلون صدق الله العظيم وسسبكت العلماء الكرام رضي الله one occasion some people came to hazrat aisha siddiqa radhiyallahu ta'ala anha after the passing of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam from dunya and they came and asked her a question and they said to her they tell us what was the most amazing thing you saw about rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam this was the first the eagerness to keep inquiring about the various aspects of the mubarak life of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and they would come all the way to the sahaba ikram that were present at that time those who were close to rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam to the azwaj mutahharat and from time to time many sahaba would be asked this kind of question tell us something that you saw about rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam how did nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam do certain thing this thirst unfortunately is something that has to a very great extent died off to learn about the seerat of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam learn about various details of deen many a person reads a lot but unfortunately what we read is either futile much of it is either futile and sometimes and a lot of times much of it is very very harmful and whereas what a person reads is also something that impacts directly on the heart if it is something that's positive that is being read something that is very constructive meaningful something that has been written by somebody with taqwa then that which was in the heart of the author comes through his writing and it impacts on the heart of the reader this is something which has been experienced by many great personalities as well one great alim from pakistan was once down and this was many many years back and he was talking about some very various deviated groupings and how they have gone astray etc and then the writings that these people have left behind how detrimental they are in that process this alim was somebody who had delved into this very very deeply and he had spent his almost his life studying these deviated groups and refuting their all their batil beliefs so on that occasion by chance because somebody asked him a question one of the ulama that was present asked him something 
And he said, you give me a paragraph of so-and-so. He took one person's name, a person who is totally deviated. He said, you give me a paragraph written by this person, take it out from one of his books. But you choose such a paragraph, which in it is, there's nothing wrong in that particular paragraph. Because a person who writes a book, and if his agenda is to bring a person to some kind of deviation, then he's not going to write that from the first line till the last line. By and large, that won't be the case. One Jew wrote an entire book, a thick book, on Sayyidina Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala great Sahabi of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi That Sahabi regarding whom Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa said that رَضِيتُ لِأُمَّتِي مَا رَضِيَ لَهَا إِبْنُ أُمِّ عَبْدٍ that I am pleased with that for my ummah which Ibn Umm Abd meaning Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu what he endorses I have already endorsed. In other words he will only endorse that which was something that I would be pleased with. And as Abu Musa Shari radiallahu ta'ala he says that for a period of time when we had just come to Madinah Munawwara, I thought that Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu an was part of the household of Rasulullah He was one of the family members. Because of the extent of, I, to the extent I saw him coming and going into the house, obviously there was a separate section where Nabi sallallahu would attend to him. But so often he was coming and going, I thought he was part of the family of Rasulullah sallallahu Now this person, this Jew wrote a whole book and he wrote all these ahadiths as well about the virtues of Abdullah bin Mas'ud and many many more and in detail now it still leaves a very big question that what interest has a Jew got in writing about this great Sahabi Mashallah his virtues are already there we didn't need a Jew to tell us about it and there are many authentic books written on the seerat of Abdullah bin Mas'ud and many of the other Sahaba Ikram but what interest does a Jew have in writing this? So in any case, this whole book he writes from beginning to end in the praise of Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala but close towards the end of it. Now every way he's writing everything with full references. This from this Sahih Bukhari and this is from Sahih Muslim and this is from here and there and so on and everything very very well referenced. But come towards the end, he writes one line totally out of his pocket. But by the time the person comes to that one line, he is so captivated by this because he's now learned the skill of saying something in a and articulating it in a proper way. So he's already captivated the reader's mind and his heart. And he's already now taking him along. He is just by the time he comes halfway down the line, he's ready to take anything and everything that he's been given. Because he's now built the confidence. And then coming towards the end, he writes one line, which is no reference obviously, because it's a totally fallacious thing. He says, sometimes he used to fabricate hadith. Now, sometimes he used to fabricate hadith, Nawazubillah. Where he got that from? No reference for it. Because there cannot be any reference for it. But he left this one poison in the heart of the mind. This whole book was written for this one poison. Now, a person who's not discerning, now he comes across any hadith narrated on Abdullah ibn Mas'udin radiallahu an that Abdullah ibn Mas'udin now reports already it's in his mind that one line. For that one line this whole book was written. 
Otherwise, everything else was fine. So, in any case, this is one very big danger of reading books of Orientalists, people without deen, and they are writing on subjects of Islam. There is no proper motive for it. There is a hidden agenda behind it. And there is this hidden poisons in between it. Therefore, we should never touch such books. These are very, very harmful, very detrimental, very dangerous for our Iman, for our Deen. So in any case, this Alim was giving this example and he took, he said, he took somebody's name, one person who was a leader of one deviated group, and he said, you take out one paragraph from one of his books, that paragraph which in itself is 100% correct, in that paragraph there is nothing wrong that has been written there. And you extract that paragraph and you present it to me. You don't tell me where you took this out from. Whose book this has been brought from. And I will just read through that paragraph and I will tell you who wrote this. So they asked him, but if that paragraph is something completely correct, one is now, there is something incorrect written there, you can identify this is the kind of person this person was, these are the kind of beliefs he had, so this must be his writing. But now if something is 100% correct, anybody could have written it. How you now will be able to discern this and state it that this is so-and-so writing? See, it's because of the zulmat that I get out of it. The darkness and there's a kind of evil feeling that comes out of it. This person, what he's written is right. But he's written it with that poisoned heart. That heart that is poisoned with all evil beliefs, wrong beliefs, batil beliefs, deviated things, that comes into the writing of the person. And the person who is reading it now, that then turns back into the person's heart. So now he is reading things from people that are immoral, completely without any shame and modesty, people who have written things who are totally uh, far away from any kind of... In, Humanity, let alone being, having any iman. So now when a person is going to keep reading this kind of writings, what's going to be the end result? What's going to be the effect? So the thing to search for and the thing to read about is the life of Rasulullah the Sahaba Kiram, written by people of taqwa. Written by people who had true knowledge and people of taqwa. That will be something that will impact on the heart of the person. The lives of the Akabirin, the pious predecessors, the Sahaba Ikram obviously coming from there downwards, this is something to be read about. And it is something that has come from their lives, from their hearts, in impact on our hearts. So likewise, these people used to always have this thirst. In the time of the Sahaba Ikram, the Tabi'een would come to them, they would keep inquiring from them. Like these people came to us, Aisha Siddiqa radiallahu ta'ala anha. said, Please tell us, what was the most amazing thing that you saw about Rasulullah So she replied and said that everything of his was absolutely amazing. What was not amazing? After all, Allah Ta'ala had blessed him with the best of everything. Like, like that couplet Hazrat Hassan bin Sabit radiallahu ta'ala an, he summarizes the whole aspect of the perfection of Rasulullah and the last Part of which he says, he says, خُلِقْتَ مُبَرَّأً مِّن كُلِّ عَيْبٍ كَأَنَّكَ قَدْ خُلِقْتَ كَمَا تَشَاءً 
you have been created free of every blemish, every weakness, every deficiency. Complete perfection Allah Ta'ala given in your akhlaq. وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَى خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ The most noble character anybody could ever possess. And beyond that, that was the character Allah Ta'ala blessed Rasulullah Sallallahu And that is the peak of things. That akhlaq. To live with akhlaq. And all the other qualities and attributes of Rasulullah Sallallahu So Nabi Sallallahu had the greatest perfection. So now to read about this perfection and to imbibe this. So the Sahaba would be asked about it. What did you see about Rasulullah Wasallam? The Asha said, everything about him was totally amazing. What can I tell you? Nevertheless, then she in- relates one incident. She says one night Rasulullah Wasallam came and he then lay on the bed with me. And after having laid down for a while, then he addresses me and says, Ya bint Abi Bakr. O daughter of Abu Bakr. Now this was an affectionate address. An affectionate way of addressing somebody. In the Arabic usage of words and names and so on, this is an affectionate address. So now he's addressing her in this affectionate manner and then what he says to her, that, Zarini ata'abbadu rabbi. Allow me to go and worship my Rabb. Rasulullah the greatest of all the Anbiya and the messengers of Allah Taala, the greatest of every makhluk and creation of Allah Taala. nobody, all the Anbiya Musalam, all the angels, all the makhluk of Allah Taala, all put together, they can't come anywhere close to the rank of Rasulullah And he being such a great personality, but he is asking permission. Now this is not something that was an obligation that he needed this permission. But everything doesn't go by the book. Especially in a marriage, things don't go by the book. Meaning that everything must go by the book. If everything has to go by the book, then it will become like a formal employment kind of situation. The boss and the employee. And then after that you will find maybe many husbands also in the CCMA. So it doesn't go by the book. One is what is known as Zabta. Zabta is the rule. And the other is Rabta. There's a bond. A marriage or any relationship of such a nature between parents and children, between brothers and sisters, between family members, between neighbors. So you don't take out the rule book. It doesn't work like that. The rules are there. That is the borders to show, look, don't cross this, don't come close to it also. In a marriage, the rights have been spelt out. But the rights have generally been spelt out as part of the responsibilities of the opposite party. And wherever the rights have been spelt out also, it's spelt out in the way where, that look, this is the limit, don't transgress this limit. Tilka hududullahi fala taqrabuha. These are the limits of Allah Ta'ala. Look, don't come close to these boundaries. Because when a person comes too close to the border, he can just fall over. So don't come close to it. But, what has been thought is, so one is the rule. But that rule, that is just to show what the limits are. But how will it work? It won't work by the rule. It will work with that bond. Zapta, with the rapta, with that bond. 
So likewise, one was, whether it was now a part of obligation, a part of the right of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, that she must first be asked for permission in order to perform the ibadat of Allah ta'ala. So that was something that was not an obligation. But when there is a relationship, then a person then doesn't look at the rule book. He looks at what is the bond. And the bond requires that there is a very... Uh, the atmosphere is such that there is that happiness all around. Everybody is moving in the same direction. There isn't that tug of war and tension carrying on all the time. And that requires that even where there isn't this kind of obligation a person is showing consideration. Obligation is in his place. But beyond obligation is consideration. There are certain things which are not part of obligation. But they form part of this rapta, part of this consideration. And in order to show this consideration, Nabi Islam is asking her permission. That can I make the ibadat of my Rabb? So the Aisha Radhiallahu replies that I love your closeness. But nevertheless, you want to make ibadat of Allah Ta'ala by all means. So what she replied with, that same, that reply, that look, obviously, this something else is what is my happiness now, but my happiness is in your happiness. You want to make the ibadat of Allah Ta'ala by all means. So in any case, she says, Nabi Salaam then woke up. He left the bed. He went and made wudu. After having performed wudu, he then came and he started his salah. And then she says he commenced his salah and he began weeping to such an extent in his salah hatta sala dumu'uhu ala sadrihi that his tears flowed down all the way to his chest. And he continued weeping in this way. Then she says he made ruku and then he carried on weeping in this manner in his ruku. And then he raised up from the ruku and he carried on standing for a long time, weeping in the same manner. Then he made sajda and he carried on weeping in the sajda in that manner. And then he sat up again and then again he went to the next sajda and all these postures he's weeping in the same way. And then the next rakat carried on in that same manner and she says that this continued until Bilal radiallahu anhu suddenly came, meaning the whole night had passed. And Bilal radiallahu anhu came to give the azan of fajr. So finally, Nabi Wasallam then terminated the salah. Can we imagine this whole night has gone in this manner? So Allah's Nabi Wasallam, obviously his maqam, his rank, what can we even imagine one iota of it? And what Allah Ta'ala had blessed him with, that tawfiq, etc. We can't even imagine one dot of it. But Nabi Wasallam spent many, many nights in this manner. His life was filled with nights in this manner. Here we don't have that ability, that strength to be able to spend a whole night in this manner even once in our life. But we may be able to spend maybe once in a while, maybe one hour in this manner. Okay, not one hour, maybe half an hour. Maybe 15 minutes. Meaning after the Isha Salah is over, after we've gone home, and now once in a lifetime sometimes, or some time or the other, apart from just that rare occasion where it is some kind of auspicious occasion, which obviously we must make the maximum of, 
But apart from that, once in a while also, five minutes, two rakats, completely with that focus towards Allah Ta'ala, just solely to show our obedience to Allah Ta'ala and our subservience to Him and our gratitude to Him. Otherwise, unfortunately, by and large, the five salah too, if we are performing it, the five daily salah, that is something which is farz. That too, if we are performing it, then the big question is, how well? How well is it being performed? And if it is being performed, alhamdulillah, in the proper manner, with all the sunnats, etc. being fulfilled, then too, generally, we regard it as, that we've done a great duty, but it's just like that person who clocked in on time, and he clocked out on time, and that's it. So the employer is not too thrilled about him. Fine, he did his job. It's okay. But he's not the person that gets that special attention. Because he's not prepared to do one but out of time. He's not to, the, the customer is standing there, but he's looking at his watch. He says, time is up. Time is up. Now you do what you want to do. My time is up. I'm going. But there's another person that that customer came in now just at that time and now it's time to leave. But he attended to him out of his own will. He's not asking for anything. He said, well, fine. So the employer noticed this. He witnessed what happened. Is he not going to be moved to now show extra consideration to this, to the staff of his? Whereas that employer also is insan like us. Allah Ta'ala is the know of everything. Allah Ta'ala is the know of what is in the heart. And Allah Ta'ala is the one who's given us everything. Who's brought us into existence and given us everything. So this... Nabi Islam spent nights and nights like this. And every night one portion was spent like this. And sometimes the whole night would go like this. So Nabi Islam spent this whole night in this manner. We should be trying sometimes that 5-10 minutes, once in a while, go home after a while. Unfortunately our time goes away in trying to know what's happening throughout the world. All the other things in social media and whatever else. And the time just whiles away. Whereas what barakat we might get from so much of, from some amal that we could have done. Sometimes we take this amal for granted, but there's great barakat that comes in it. One person just wrote, and part of the, just as a discussion, that I don't make it, it's not my, my constant practice to recite Surah Yasin daily. Sometimes I recite it, sometimes I don't. But it's something to try and take the benefit of because there's great virtues for reciting Surah Yasin first thing in the morning after Fajr, before Fajr also, meaning after Fajr time has come in. So the person who recites Surah Yasin at the beginning of the day, Allah Ta'ala causes all his needs to get fulfilled. And reciting Surah Yasin once, the reward is of making khatam of the Quran Sharif equivalent to the reward of making khatam of the Quran Sharif ten times. So this person is writing that I sometimes read Recite Surah Yasin sometimes not. But now over time, I have clearly seen, and after thinking back, that those days that I recited Surah Yasin, I find a lot of ease in my work. Compared to the days that I didn't recite. I've just been noticing this. I've just been now working out that day there was this problem and things went haywire. But that was the morning I didn't recite Surah Yasin. The other day everything went smooth. You see, I've been taking note of this and this has become like a clear thing to me. These amal are not just for the sake of getting some kind of worldly benefit. That worldly benefit will come. 
that worldly benefit, that is the fringe benefit of this. These amal are to be done for the pleasure of Allah Ta'ala. That worldly benefit will come. So likewise, that night, some part of that night in the ibadat of Allah Ta'ala, some tasbih, some dua, some zikr, some tilawat of the Qur'an Sharif, unfortunately our time gets caught up in all these sideline things, and let alone sideline things which are futile, then so many haram things come in. Can we imagine somebody comes to us and says, I want to take your son along, I want to be his friend, where are you going to take him? Well, I will take him some places, some places there's some all kind of nudity there and so on, I'll take him there. And then there's one place there where they encouraging how to drink. So we'll sit down there for a while, and then there's some other places, all kinds of mixing up taking place, and there's like a disco, whatever the kind is, I'll take him there also. Any sane person will say, okay, take my son and go. Nobody, no sane person will ever say this. But how often all that happens on that screen in that room, of, in that lounge, that that son of ours is sitting there, he's getting encouraged to drink, because that's an advert playing there. One person wrote to an alim, he says, I am unfortunately deeply sinking in this, in this crime of drinking. I got caught up in drinking. And then he's writing how it happened. He says he never ever thought and ever imagined in his mind that he'll ever get caught up in drinking. He says, one day while watching television, suddenly then an advert came. Now that advert was something about some alcoholic drink. Obviously that advert is meant to entice a person and to catch him into it. That's the whole purpose of it. And that is why they have psychologists behind the creation of these adverts. They have people with PhDs in psychology sitting in the advertising industry. So what has a person with psychology and a PhD in psychology to do with the advertising industry? Because the whole gimmick is how to turn the mind. How to capture the mind. And how something... Not just something useless can be made to look like very, very uh, good to a person. Something that is totally harmful. How the person can be duped to think that this is something good for me. That whole effort is to dupe that person watching or reading that advert into thinking this is something good. So he said, I just saw that one advert. That one advert and that just caught my mind. And now the same thing is just rewinding and rewinding. And until one day I was passing somewhere and the same thing was rewinding in my mind. As soon as I saw that place and the same thing flashed back. And before I knew it I walked in and that was the first time and I just got caught with it. We started off from, from that one advert. So now that person who somebody comes to say he's taking his son to all these kind of places and this kind of environments and where all those nudities going to be, he will be very, very offended and upset. You have even the audacity to come and tell me you're taking my son all these places? Or you're taking my daughter to all these places? You've got no brains, you're coming and talking to me like this? But where else are they going in that, within that four walls of that home and they're sitting in front of that box, what they are watching? And what is going to be the impact of all that? So this is something that we need to bring alive in our homes, this ibadat, this remembrance of Allah wa ta'ala, tilawat of the Quran Sharif, zikr, dua, talim, this will start generating that consciousness of Allah Ta'ala. And then, like we started off by saying, to search and thirst, to learn about the life of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, to learn about all the good things about deen, 
then this thirst will get created. So in any case, Aisha Siddiqah says that Nabi Sallallahu spent this whole night like this. She says, finally when he completed his salah, I then asked him that, Oh Rasulullah Sallallahu why do you take such a difficulty, so much of strain upon yourself, and this whole night you spent in this manner, وَقَدْ غَفَرَ اللَّهُ لَكَ مَا تَقَدَّمَ مِنْ ذَنْبِكَ وَمَا تَأَخَّرَ Whereas you are completely masoom, you are completely sinless. There is not one iota of any blemish in this regard. So why are you taking so much of strain upon you? Nabi Islam responded and replied and said, أَفَلَا أَكُونُ عَبْدًا شَكُورًا that, Yes, that is the case. Allah Ta'ala has made me masoom and sinless. So does that not require that I should be very grateful to Allah Ta'ala? This is the gratitude. This that I have been doing is the gratitude that I am expressing to Allah Ta'ala. Now if we think about it for a while, that how many bounties Allah Ta'ala has showered upon us and is showering upon us non-stop. And what gratitude have we shown in return to Allah Ta'ala for His ni'mads? It is mentioned in one Misala Qushayriya, one Kitab, that one of the Ambiyali Musalatullah, he passed by one little stone, small pebble. There was a lot of water gushing out of the small pebble. Found this very strange. So much of water gushing out of the small pebble. So Allah Ta'ala gave that pebble the ability to speak. So that pebble replied and said, or spoke up and said, that from the time I heard about this ayat of the Quran Sharif, that this ayat is in the Quran Sharif, that, وَقُودُهَ nasu wal hijara that regarding Jahannam, that its fuel is people and stones. Stone is something like is dead. We look at it as dead. But the fuel of Jahannam will be stones. So ever since I heard that out of fear, that I must not also become part of the fuel of Jahannam. Out of fear I am just weeping ever since. This is my tears. So this Nabi of Allah Ta'ala made dua, Allah grant this stone refuge from Jahannam. So Allah Ta'ala gave that glad tiding, this stone won't go to Jahannam. So he gave the glad tiding to the stone and moved on. After some time he came past again and again this is still the same, that same amount, small little stone and so much of water is gushing out of it. So he asked, what happened now? So again Allah Ta'ala gave the stone the ability to speak and said, well that was the tears of fear and grief. That what if I end up there? But now that I've been given this glad tiding, these are the tears of gratitude. These are the tears of shukr. Allah Ta'ala has favored me in this manner. In other words, I have to still ref- just keep going back to Allah Ta'ala alone. There's no other place for me. My place is only one place. Back in the court of Allah Ta'ala. So this is that very, very essential quality of a mu'min. That he is forever grateful. His life is permeated with shukr. The shukr is such a thing and sabr is such a thing. These are things like how a person breathes. He can't do without breathing. If he stops breathing, that will be the end of him. It means life is filled with shukr in this manner. Everything is shukr. Everything about him. One person wrote to one great personality, one of the great awliya of the previous times, and he said, one thief entered my house, and he stole some of my goods. Now this lesson of shukar, that in everything they still had the same focus. Now that is obviously an occasion of sabr as well. But he wrote to him the first line, make shukar. 
Make shukar that it was only your house that the thief broke into and it was only material wealth that he stole. What if the thief had broken into your heart, meaning referring to the thief of shaitan, and if he stole your tawheed away, he stole your iman away, can, can anything equate that loss? So first make shukar that this thief or somebody that only came to the house didn't come to your heart. Then obviously make sabr on that also. Allah Ta'ala will replace that with something better. But in all these occasions, all these situations, they kept on bringing that lesson of shukar again. And why is this so important and so fundamental? One is our concept of shukar, that like how we just thank somebody, somebody gives us some favors, we say jazakallah. We just thank the person. Here it is far beyond that. It is far beyond just expressing gratitude. When a person truly recognizes his benefactor, when he, by constantly making shukar, gains the ma'rifat of Allah Ta'ala via shukar, that shukar and the reality of shukar will bring him to ita'at, to complete obedience. Somebody has been doing him a lot of favors all the time. Any person with little bit of a sense of honor in him, some shame in him, he'll be, he won't be able to say something harsh to that person. Every day the person is doing him some favor. Now he, no matter what the situation might be, he forgets saying something vulgar, he won't even be able to raise his voice to the person. If he's got a little bit of shame in him also, little bit, not even a lot. person with little bit of shame also won't do it. Why? Because this person every day is doing me some favors. And if that person has to ask for one small favor in return, he will be ready to give his life. If he's got a little bit of shame in him. Now this is that reality of shukar, that a person who's got true shukar for Allah Ta'ala, then he won't be able to use that eyes in haram. Because this is completely against the dictates of shukar and the requirement of shukar of that eye. How is he going to sit and look at haram with that eye that Allah Ta'ala has blessed him with? And which he uses all the time for such great benefit to himself. And without those eyes he would be in such a distress and such a difficulty. If that reality of shukr was there, that I cannot and will not be used for any haram. How is he going to stick those earphones in that ears, which Allah Ta'ala blessed him, and stick those earphones to listen to the haram more closely, na'uzubillah. Those ears in which Rasulullah on one occasion, he from a distance heard somebody playing on flute. It was a shepherd actually, he was herding his sheep, but he was herding his sheep by means of playing a flute. So as soon as Nabi Islam heard that, he stuck his fingers into his ears to block out the sound. That this is something not to be listened to. So Nabi Islam blocked the sound out by sticking his fingers, Mubarak fingers into his ears. Nabi Islam stuck his fingers into his ears to block out the sound of that music. Unfortunately, the Ummah today is sticking the earphones deep into the ears to listen to it even more closely. What Nabi Islam put his fingers into to block out, we putting that earphones deep down to listen to it even more closely. So how far have we gone from the way of Rasulullah Now that shukar if a person has the reality of shukar in his life, those ears won't be used to listen to any haram. Those hands and feet won't be used for haram. And that heart won't be wallowing in haram all the time. And fascinating haram and planning and plotting haram and how to do somebody down and whatever else. 
that heart, that heart will be filled with the love of Allah Ta'ala. That heart will be focused towards Allah Ta'ala. Hadith Bufti Shafi Sahib Rahmatullah to say, look, that wealth, have it in the hands, have it in the pocket, have it in the, in the safe, have it in the, wherever else you want to keep it safely, have it anywhere and everywhere. No problem. But don't have it in the heart. Because the heart is the house of the love of Allah Ta'ala. And it's not permissible for somebody else to be, so for somebody to be in somebody else's house without his permission. So all this ghayrullah, this mustn't come in the house. The house is for the, the, the heart. The heart is the house of the love of Allah Ta'ala. Let that be in the house. Don't trespass. Let all these things be outside. Now that heart which is filled with shukr, that heart will be all the time focused towards Allah Ta'ala and be grateful to Allah Ta'ala. And be conscious of Allah Ta'ala. So this shukr is a very deep thing. And this is something to ponder over, something to be consciously making the shukr daily. And in this way, inshallah, we will get closer to Allah Ta'ala in all our amal as well. And we will get further away from all sin and haram. Because the shukr will become a barrier. When the reality of shukr comes, this will become a barrier from all these things. It's not possible for a person who is truly grateful to use the very ni'mats and bounties of Allah Ta'ala to break the laws of Allah Ta'ala. Allah Tabarak wa Ta'ala give us this reality of shukr and give us all the great teachings of deen and the qualities of deen. Allah Ta'ala make us his true and obedient servants. Keep us with iman. Take us with iman. And raise us on the day of qiyamah with iman. Wa akhiru da'wana. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alhamdulillahi.